0: Whether you have a skin interest, a skin query, a skin trauma, or skin disease, I warmly welcome you to Heal Thy Skin, a podcast brought to you by Derm health Co I'm Marnie, dermal clinician, dermoscopist, and your podcast host. Skin is deeper than beauty, and our mission is to build the largest platform of specialized practitioners focused on skin health and skin empowerment. Join me each week where we go deep into the skin and beyond to hear stories and education from leading practitioners on a journey of skin health. Hello, welcome to the Heal Thy Skin podcast. I'm Marnie, your host, and today I'm speaking with Osan Komtua, who is an exceptional 22-year-old driven and enthusiastic TikTok star who creates lifestyle and educational content centered around her life being visually impaired and living with albinism. One in every 17,000 people is living with albinism and it carries lots of different myths in different cultures throughout the world which we are going to myth bust today as well as talking about Oceans. Uh, journey and experience with TikTok, social media, and meeting people from all over the globe. I started by asking OCN what she thought was the biggest misconception about albinism.
1: I think the biggest misconception that people have about albinism is that it only affects the skin. It also affects the hair and the eyes. And I think people tend to think about the white hair, pale skin, and they forget that it also affects the eyes and the eyesight that a person with albinism has.
0: Yes, big misconception right there. So are you able to explain what albinism is for those that may not have been very familiar with it?
1: Yeah, so albinism is a recessive genetic condition. It's inherited from birth. So you're born with albinism, essentially. It has to do with a lack of melanin production. You can produce zero melanin or just a lack of, but it would be a substantial lack of melanin. And melanin is very important for the production of skin pigment and color. So skin color and skin pigment and also the color of your hair is determined by the amount of melanin that you have. And so for us, we would have less melanin or no melanin, and we would have pale hair and pale skin
0: so tell us about your story do you have other family members with albinism before you were born
1: yes so i have my sister and but my sister is my younger sister so i am pretty much the first one to my knowledge my family tried to go back and see if there was anyone but we weren't really able to find anything so i am the first one
0: So although you wouldn't remember, you know, the being born part, I'm sure your parents have told stories about the diagnosis of albinism and what that looked like really early on. Are you able to walk us through that journey?
1: Well, my parents don't have albinism. They're just carriers and they weren't aware ahead of time that they are carriers of the albinism gene. And so when I was born, they quickly came to the realization that this baby has white hair (laughs) and my parents have dark brown hair for comparison. So they were a bit shocked and a bit confused. And sure enough, they found out that they were carriers of the albinism gene and that I had albinism. And from that point on, my parents just started educating themselves on albinism and how it affects my life. And I'm sure they were a bit worried because people with albinism, they do have more susceptibility to skin cancer, and they do have a lot of social challenges. And there are a lot of physical barriers for people with albinism, because people with albinism are usually visually impaired, or sometimes legally blind, like I am in my case. And so they were a little worried, but they just took their time, and they learned as much as they can. And now they're always the first people to tell everyone all about albinism. So
0: so they have become the educators, which is, Absolutely. which is great. So what were your first memories of, I guess, being a child in school? And you talked about some of those physical, perhaps, differences that because of your blindness, was that something that was progressive or was that something um, that happened quite early on?
1: no so i was born with a visual impairment i'm legally blind i'm not fully blind i have about nine to ten percent of my vision but to me i've never known anything different so What I see is what I assumed for a long time that everybody else saw. (laughs) And I found out a little bit later on in life that that's not how people see, (laughs) and that I am, in fact, visually impaired. But as a child, you don't really have that sense of difference between children, I guess. And it's only when you grow older and you're more experienced and exposed to the rest of the world that you realize that there are differences between people. And so I think. I didn't see these differences growing up. And I don't think the other kids around me noticed them, but I was maybe about 10, 11, 12 years old when I started to really realize that I looked different. No one else looked like me and that I had to put on sunscreen before going outside. And I had to put on hats and sunglasses and other kids didn't have to. And I got... Uh, different accommodations in school. And it's kind of like where I started to realize, hey, I'm not so similar to everyone else.
0: Was that challenging? Or was it in a way encouraging because your albinism was being addressed?
1: I think it was very difficult. I had a really, really difficult time. And it wasn't until I was maybe 18 or 19 where I started to realize that my albinism, you know, wasn't as bad as I thought it was, that I can overcome the challenges that I'm presented with. And and I have overcome a lot of challenges. And I started to celebrate my albinism a lot more as I got older. But when I was younger, around that time is where I really struggled with my identity and with my self-image. And I just got dragged down into this really dark hole and I didn't really know how to get out of it for a really long time and I'm so thankful that I did. So how did you? I think there are multiple things that I credit to me being able to accept who I am. I would say that my sister has played a huge role in that and she doesn't even know it. (laughs) Um, That's beautiful. I think when I was 18, 19, my sister called me one day. I had just finished my classes for the day. I was in university my first year and she had called me and she started the conversation with whatever you do, don't tell mom and dad, but I'm getting a cane because I think that I cannot see. And I think that I am a danger to myself if I go out and I do things alone and I don't feel comfortable. And I was so uncomfortable with the idea of her using a cane because I was told that that's for blind people. And (laughs) I really struggled with that for a long time, but she sat down and she talked to me and she made me realize that, yeah, we have albinism. We are legally blind. We do have a lot of needs that other people do not have in society. And that's kind of where I started to kind of explore my identity and, and how I identified with albinism and how it was important in my life. And so sure enough, a couple of years later, I got a cane of my own. I'm a blind cane user. <laughs> and I started to find ways to make myself feel comfortable with my albinism. And I started taking care of my skin I used to not wear any sunscreen at that time I was rebelling a lot (laughs) but I started to take care of myself and finding my own beauty within my genetic condition and so I I credit my sister to that Mm, that's so beautiful to hear
0: so how old were you when she was born
1: I was say we have a 17 month age difference so about a year and a half pretty close pretty close yeah
0: And when your parents fell pregnant with her, were they aware that there was a high chance that she may have albinism?
1: I think they were aware, but they weren't very aware because the thing is you have a 25% chance of having a child with albinism if you are a carrier of the albinism gene. And so I think my parents kind of just sat there and thought to themselves, like, what are the odds that we're going to get a second child with albinism? But sure enough... (laughs)
0: too but then it just sounds like that was that's so important for your growth and perhaps hers as well to have someone to talk to in those early years and have that you know that sisterly kind of relationship that goes deeper than that because you're experiencing things in your life that others around you aren't and even your parents haven't gone through as well
1: yeah absolutely and I think it's one of those relationships where we don't openly talk about our albinism with each other and I don't think we're so comfortable with each other but there's just one thing and it's albinism we just can't talk about it outright I don't know what it is it just makes us uncomfortable but it's just having that person even if you're not talking about it even if you're not doing anything it's just I felt like it was normal I felt like it was going to be okay because I had somebody else
0: yeah, to have that support around you, even if it's just that unsaid support can be yeah, really encouraging and amazing for someone. So you are a scientist and you're doing some amazing things at work and school. Did albinism affect your career path or what you decided to do when you grew up,
1: I guess? Thank you. So, yes, I think it definitely has, but I think it really evolved over time so i think my parents and i we had this great relationship but my parents would push me a lot in school and i think the fact that i had albinism the fact that i was a student with a disability didn't really they didn't really take it easier on me (laughs) and they had these high expectations for me they thought i was going to be a doctor an engineer or something and so i also happened to have that love of science as well and so i just felt like i was constantly being supported into this journey which was amazing and sure enough I decided I was going to become a scientist. I realized that because of my eyesight I would have a harder time being a doctor, but I fell in love with science and research and I wanted to learn more about albinism and albinism research. Flash forward to today, I'm not pursuing that anymore. (laughs) I think I've learned a lot more about myself over those recent years and I don't think that's the direction I will be taking, but I had this big dream that I was going to find out more about albinism and I was going to be a scientist with a disability and I was going to be a scientist with albinism who was going to research my own condition. And so I think that's what really motivated me for many years.
0: Hmm. And did you get to a point where you thought, I don't feel like I need to do that anymore because you came to a place of more self-acceptance or did you find other interests or loves?
1: I think so. I think there's two main reasons. I think one, I learned a lot more about myself. I realized that I'm not the most dedicated scientist. I go to school with some really intelligent, really amazing people who are living, breathing, sleeping science every day. And for me, it just didn't feel like it was the right fit for me. But also, I think my interest in learning more about albinism and essentially quote-unquote curing albinism, it just went away because I realized that I don't need a cure. As nice as as it would be for a lot of people who say I would like to have a cure, I'd like to be able to see normally, I wouldn't. I love my life the way it is. I don't think it has hindered my ability to do anything really. I've been able to accommodate and adapt and, and do everything I've wanted to do and so I'm not in search of a cure anymore and so I guess that interest kind of just faded away.
0: And the conversations about a cure, like we've had similar conversations on the podcast about different cures for different types of skin conditions and diseases. And it's really interesting to hear when people say, I don't want a cure. And some people do, and that's completely okay. Everyone has is entitled to their opinion and their choice as well. But how do you address when a conversation comes up with someone that doesn't have albinism and they're claiming that you can try this or you can try this or some miracle cure, have you got a certain way that you will communicate with that? Have you got some one-liners that might be beneficial for those that often, <laughs> you know, the come strangers come up to them asking questions and trying to give them some cure to their condition where the medical arena hasn't found a condition yet, but, you know, someone's aunt has some wonderful cream or potion or lotion? <laughs>
1: Yeah, I think it's different for me in the sense that people see my albinism and I think people are so intrigued by albinism because it looks so different. And people are always coming up to me saying, you're so beautiful. You should do this with your hair and oh, you should do this with your skin and you need to do this. And it's really hard, especially when it's not a person with albinism. And even if it is a person with albinism, they mean well but we all have different experiences. And so for me, I will accept the comment and I will accept it, I'll listen to it, but I'm very comfortable letting people know that I'm comfortable with who I am. I am trying things on my own. I can definitely try their suggestion, but right now it's not my priority. I'm comfortable with who I am. I like to do what I wanna do and that's just what it is. I think the public doesn't really think that albinism needs a cure per se, because people think that it's so magical and so beautiful and oh, the pale hair and the purple eyes, you don't need that. But a lot of people with albinism do believe that, you know, they would like to have their eyesight, they would like to look normal. And that's very fair. And that's super acceptable. But for me, I've just grown to be really comfortable with who I am. And I enjoy it. So Mm. I, I don't think I need anything really.
0: Yeah, absolutely. That's fantastic. So what does a usual day look like in terms of skincare And as well as sunscreen and, you know, being more aware in the sun, are there certain other types of appointments and other type of skincare things that you do on a regular basis or semi regular basis?
1: Mm -hmm. So growing up, I always had to apply sunscreen religiously. And before going outside at recess or before going outside to play, I would have to wear sunscreen and a big hat, a bucket hat. (laughs) Uh, I have so many traumatizing images of my mother putting me in these denim bucket hats (laughs) Um, and I would have to wear sunscreen and sunglasses and pretty much stay in the shade even if I did have sunscreen on because it only lasts for about 15 to 30 minutes before you have to reapply constantly. And then because of this traumatic experience where I've had people yell at me to put on sunscreen and I hate the texture of sunscreen, that's another thing that sounds so silly, but I think the texture of sunscreen, I hate it. I'm sure you can definitely
0: grow an aversion to it. But thankfully in the last probably decades, you've noticed um, that sunscreen is uh, formulated a bit differently as well.
1: Oh, absolutely. And so for a long time, I didn't wear any sunscreen. But now with all these advancements in beauty and having makeup that has SPF built into it and having sunscreen in like a a stick format that you can just put on and nice creams that are more water-based and and like creamy. And I think now I've fallen in love with wearing sunscreen again. It's essential that I wear sunscreen I need to stay protected in the sun, especially because people with albinism have a higher risk of skin cancer. And so I've now switched to using a lot of makeup products that have built in SPF, but even then it's still not enough for me. So I will wear sunscreen. I put sunscreen on every day. Even now when I'm at home, (laughs) I still put sunscreen on on my face every day. But again, you have to reapply so often. And so I find myself kind of sticking to the shade (laughs) so I still stay a lot in shady areas, but I will wear my sunscreen all the time. It is a must-have, and I think I've been experimenting a lot with skincare and with makeup recently. I had a really hard time with it because I was feeling so turned off by it in the past, but now I dig into my skincare routine, and I love doing my makeup every day, so
0: and the sunscreen and even for those without albinism we're huge advocates of sunscreen so slip slop slap slide as we say in australia
1: (laughs) and do not forget to reapply
0: (laughs) yeah that's another thing isn't it that people apply in the morning thinking that they're going to be protected all day long and it's just simply not the case absolutely So Oceanne, talk to us about TikTok. This is where we found you actually, and you've been wildly successful on TikTok. How did this start? And yeah, tell us the story.
1: (laughs) Thank you. I started about a year ago. I got a TikTok and it was originally for my friends to send me funny videos that they would find. (laughs) And then we started making our own little silly videos. They were intended for just the two of us, the three of us. And then You know, it started growing to become like an intergroup friend thing, but it was strictly friends. And it was all these inside jokes, nothing that anyone would really understand. And then one day I saw a video of a woman who was talking about her insecurities. And I sat there and thought to myself, my insecurities are so different than everyone else's. They're very similar, but they're also very different because. I have, you know, different skin and different hair, and it was something that I was very self-conscious about, and now I've learned to love it, but I decided that I was going to make a video of my insecurities, and sure enough, it blew up. I went to bed, and I woke up the next morning with about 20,000 likes, and I didn't know what to do with myself. And then from that point on, I found all these comments and all these questions. And ever since then, I've been answering questions and I've been creating my own content just about my life and and what it's like. Mm, Fantastic.
0: And have you met others from the albinism community as well?
1: Yes. Some of my best friends have actually come from TikTok and they are all in the albinism community. We have this group of girls and we talk every day. I talk to them right before coming on. I asked them the other day, I was like, guys, I'm, I'm going on a nice podcast. Can you guys give me some suggestions of, of things I can say? <laughs> and so they, they all say hello, by the way. But <laughs> hello. <laughs> oh, they're so sweet. And we met on TikTok through this community. And I think it has kind of made me feel a lot more confident. I was already a little bit more confident than I was before. And now with my newfound friendship with people with albinism, and being involved in the albinism community a lot more, I feel so empowered and I feel so happy.
0: That's so cool. And do you like, what's next for this? Do you just think that you'll continue creating content? Is there anything in the works that you can share with us? (laughs)
1: <laughs> well, I think I will continue to create content, but I think I'll do it at my own pace. I'm not trying to be an influencer. I'm not trying to do this forever. I mean, I would like to do this forever, but I have a lot of other goals and, and a lot of other dreams. And, and so TikTok is one of those things that I do on the side. So I really enjoy doing it though. And I would like to continue doing that. I feel like I would like to create a YouTube channel and I've kind of started the process of getting branding ready and creating the channel. And now I need to just film some videos and and edit them and put them up. But I think TikTok is great, but it limits you to one minute. And there are so many things that I want to discuss, but you can't discuss these things over one minute. And I think YouTube will be the next big step for me. Well, that's exciting. Well,
0: you have to make sure to share the links so that we can share it with the community as well. Yeah, I'd be love to he- hear more of your story. And yes, one minute is fun and easy to watch and engage with, but certainly for some of those bigger topics, long form video is certainly um, that. So from your point of view, what do you wish people would stop telling you about? albinism or the perhaps limitations that have been put onto the albinism community
1: i think there are a lot of things that i wish people would stop saying and that people would stop doing and there are a lot of things that i wish people would start doing but i think one of the big things is to stop making assumptions about people with albinism and to stop believing internet myths please. (laughs) I mean, I love answering questions. And again, my whole social media presence and my whole platform is built on me wanting to answer questions and raise awareness. And so I love answering questions. So just ask, I don't want to have people be misled or to think albinism is something different than what it really is. And so I think it's really important to ask questions when you have the opportunity and to stop making assumptions.
0: Yeah, great advice. And what are some of those things that you would like to see more of?
1: I would like to see more inclusion of conversations about disability and about persons with disability within society. I think persons with disabilities represent a great proportion of people in marginalized communities. And I think that we need to be able to have discussions about the social and the physical barriers in our world. I mean, People are having a hard time getting jobs because of their disability status. People are not getting the right accommodations at work and people are being paid less for work because of their disability. People are not able to enter shops or to take public transit because people are just not willing to have these conversations and include people with disability in conversations about how to build a better world. And that's one thing that I would really like to see.
0: Mm. Yeah, so important to just make life and the world accessible to everyone. How do you think this can happen? You mentioned conversations. Who do you think needs to have these conversations? Where does it start? Like, I often find it really interesting thinking about any kind of change. Does it come from the top down or does it come from the bottom up? So, is it our governments and hospitals and universities? Or is it grassroots? And sometimes it's a bit of both, but I always love hearing people's opinions on this.
1: I think it's definitely, it goes both ways, absolutely. And so when you're thinking about communication system, you want to have that upwards and that downwards communication. So you want to be able to have just regular citizens spreading awareness and doing what they can. But these citizens need to take their resources and their words and their advocacy and their allyship from resources that are created by people in marginalized communities. And so I think you need to listen to disabled voices and respond to their cries and their needs and their desires for the future. But it also needs to happen downwards where you need to have the government create better and more inclusive and accessible policy for persons with disabilities and for marginalized communities in general to be able to stand up and build a better world.
0: Mm, That's great advice. I'd really like to hear your opinions or some advice for perhaps employers. And maybe they have never thought about hiring someone with a disability. Maybe they've thought about it, but they don't know how to go about it. Are you able to just share some of your experiences and thoughts for employers to encourage to have a more inclusive and diverse workplace?
1: I think it's difficult because I've never been in a position where I have been an employer. (laughs) I've always been the employee, but I've also been the employee who's been denied a job because I've walked into the interview and people have seen my albinism and people have seen the way that my eyes shake and the way that I, I carry myself or the way that I squint when I can't see and people make assumptions about me and my ability to do the job and it's difficult because I've been that person, but I've never been the employer myself. One thing though, is I think it's very important for people to be educated about persons with disabilities. And these like this education needs to come from disabled resources and resources that come from the disability community, because I've attended so many trainings where the information given about people with disabilities is so outdated. And it doesn't really reflect my opinions or the opinions of other people. It might reflect some opinions, but it doesn't reflect a great deal of opinions and a great deal of realities. And so I think being able to restructure the way that we educate people about persons with disabilities will make a great impact in how employers will see employees with disabilities and in turn treat employees with disabilities.
0: Yeah, so incredibly important. And there's lots of ways that workplaces can do this, whether they there's lots of training available, although, as you mentioned, some of it is outdated. But hopefully with time, this will have more of, you know, importance set upon it so that it becomes a social norm in workplaces to undergo disability training and working with people from diverse backgrounds, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Osean, are you able to share some advice for someone living with albinism, perhaps a young person that hasn't yet found their way or they're just finding
1: their place in the world? So I think one piece of advice, I mean, my top three pieces of advice, number one, trust me, it gets better. (laughs) And I mean, my experience is not the experience of everyone else. And there's so many different types of albinism. There's so many different backgrounds. And my experience cannot even cover the experiences that other people will face, but I can guarantee you from all the people I've met and from all the discussions I've had, it gets better. It really does. You will learn to accept yourself. You will love yourself. You will find ways to be comfortable with yourself. And I mean, we all are self-conscious and that's okay but you'll find ways to make yourself feel better. You'll find ways to soothe and to feel better overall. So trust me, it really does get better. Number two, I think do what makes you comfortable and what makes you happy because other people are not living with your albinism and you are the only person who gets to decide what you do with your body and how you decide to interpret your albinism. And so... If that's dyeing your eyebrows or dyeing your eyelashes or self-tanning, that's okay. That's acceptable. If that is keeping your eyebrows bare and just going out into the world the way that you are, that's acceptable. If that's wearing makeup, that is okay. We all have different ways to experience albinism. And I think it's really important that we just, I don't know, do something that makes you comfortable. And I think lastly... Don't be afraid to speak up and don't be afraid to speak out. There's a lot of injustice towards people with disabilities and albinism, you know, does include a genetic condition, and it does create a visual impairment for people who have albinism. And so speak up about your experience and don't be afraid to speak out and call out these experiences that you have that make you uncomfortable respectfully, of course. But don't be afraid to use your voice.
0: What great advice to end with. Thank you, OCN, for sharing your story with us. Finally, where can people find more about you?
1: So people can find out more about me on Instagram and on TikTok at OCNC underscore. So that'll be O-C-E-A-N-N-E-C underscore. And that's where you can find all the information. That's where you'll find my future YouTube channel, hopefully.
0: Yay! (laughs) we'll include all the links in the show notes as well for anyone listening well thank you so much for spending your evening with us it's um, morning here over in australia and and <laughs> just coming on dinner time there i really appreciate your time and it was really great to hear your journey thank, thank you. you
1: for having me it was a pleasure
0: What a wonderful conversation. I just loved speaking with Oceane and hearing about her journey, myth-busting, of course, one of my favorite things to do on the podcast, but also hearing about all these beautiful friendships and social networks that she's been able to find and to grow with the power of social media. It's really quite incredible, isn't it? Today is the last episode of 2020. We will be taking a break and we'll be back at the very, very end of January. And I just wanted to say thank you. We have over four hundred of you join us every single week. We've reached almost forty thousand uh, downloads to date on the podcast. Um, this year has been an absolute roller coaster. We were going to be doing live face to face events, which all had to be thrown out the window. But we quickly moved and started doing virtual events, and we've welcomed, uh, I think, over five hundred. Or it might even be close to a thousand people uh, for virtual events from every corner of the globe. And each of these, we did a different topic or different skin condition and had different experts and those with lived experience. And it's just so incredible for us to be able to share this over social media. I just wanted to say thank you for sharing 2020 with us because we wouldn't have done it without you. And we're really all hoping for a much more calm and happy and balanced 2021. So from the bottom of our heart at Co, I just wanted to say thank you. I wanted to say enjoy the holidays with your family and we'll see you in the new year. Bye for now. And until then, be skin powered.